1: to Terrify.
2: Good evening, children of the night. Thank you for joining us again as we mark our 200th episode with a series of classic stories for your enjoyment. We have a single longer story for you tonight from W. F. Harvey. William Fryer Harvey was born in 1885 into a Quaker family in Yorkshire. He attended Quaker schools in Yorkshire and Reading before going on Balliol College in Oxford. He took a degree in medicine at Leeds. In World War I, he joined the Friends Ambulance Unit, but later served as a Surgeon Lieutenant in the Royal Navy. During that time, he received the Albert Medal for life-saving. After the war, he worked in adult education for five years before, ill health likely stemming from lung damage sustained during the rescue for which he was awarded, forced him into an earlier retirement. During this time, he published most of his best-known works. Much of his retirement he spent with his wife in Switzerland, but returned to England prior to his death at the age of 52. This evening we will be hearing The Beast with Five Fingers.
1: When I was a little boy, I once went with my father to call on Adrian Bolsover. I played on the floor with a black spaniel while my father appealed for a subscription. Just before we left, my father said, Mr. Bolsover, may my son here shake hands with you. It will be a thing to look back upon with pride when he grows to be a man. I came up to the bed on which the old man was lying and put my hand in his, awed by the still beauty of his face. He spoke to me kindly and hoped that I should always try to please my father. Then he placed his right hand on my head and asked for a blessing to rest upon me. "'Amen,' said my father, and I followed him out of the room, "'feeling as if I wanted to cry. "'But my father was in excellent spirits. "'That old gentleman, Jim,' said he, "'is the most wonderful man in the whole town. "'For ten years he's been quite blind. "'But I saw his eyes,' I said. "'They were ever so black and shiny.' "'They weren't shut up like Nora's puppies. "'Can't he see it all?' "'And so I learned for the first time "'that a man might have eyes "'that looked dark and beautiful and shining "'without being able to see. "'Just like Mrs. Tomlinson has big ears,' I said, "'and can't hear at all, except when Mr. Tomlinson shouts. "'Jim,' said my father, "'it's not right to talk about ladies' ears. "'Remember what Mr. Bolsover said about pleasing me "'and being a good boy.' That was the only time I saw Adrian Bolsover. I soon forgot about him and the hand which he laid in blessing on my head. But for a week I prayed that those dark, tender eyes might see. His spaniel may have puppies, I said in my prayers, and he will never be able to know how funny they look with their eyes all closed up. Please let Mr. Bolsover see... Adrian Bolsover, as my father had said, was a wonderful man. He came from an eccentric family. Bolsover's sons, for some reason, always seemed to marry very ordinary women, which perhaps accounted for the fact that no Bolsover had been a genius, and only one Bolsover had been mad. But they were great champions of little causes, generous patrons of odd sciences, founders of querulous sects, trustworthy guides to the bypath meadows of erudition, Adrian was an authority on fertilization of orchids. He had held at one time the family living at Bolsover Conyers, until a congenial weakness of the lungs obliged him to seek a less rigorous climate in the sunny south-coast watering-place where I had seen him. Occasionally he would relieve one or the other of the local clergy. My father described him as a fine preacher, who gave long and inspiring sermons from what many men would have considered unprofitable texts. An excellent proof, he would add, of the truth of the doctrine of direct verbal inspiration. Adrian Bolsover was exceedingly clever with his hands. His penmanship was exquisite. He illustrated all his scientific papers, made his own woodcuts, and carved the rare-do's dues is at present the chief feature of interest in the church at Bolsover Conyers. He had an exceedingly clever knack— in cutting silhouettes for young ladies and paper pigs and cows for little children, and made more than one complicated wind instrument of his own devising. When he was fifty years old, old Adrian Bolsover lost his sight. In a wonderfully short time he had adapted himself to the new conditions of life. He quickly learned to read Braille. So marvellous indeed was his sense of touch that he was still able to maintain his interest in botany. "'the mere passing of his long supple fingers over a flower "'was sufficient means for its identification, "'though occasionally he would use his lips. "'I have found several letters of his "'among my father's correspondence. "'In no case was there anything to show "'that he was afflicted with blindness, "'and this in spite of the fact "'that he exercised undue economy in the spacing of lines. "'Toward the close of his life, "'The old man was credited with powers of touch "'that seemed almost uncanny. "'It has been said that he could tell at once "'the colour of a ribbon placed between his fingers. "'My father would neither confirm nor deny the story.'" 1. Adrian Bolsover was a bachelor. His elder brother, George, had married late in life, leaving one son, Eustace, who lived in the gloomy Georgian mansion at Bolsover Conyers, where he could work undisturbed in collecting material for his great book on heredity. Like his uncle, he was a remarkable man. The Bolsovers had always been born naturalists, but Eustace possessed, in a special degree, the power of systematizing his knowledge. He had received his university education in Germany, and then, after postgraduate work in Vienna and Naples, had travelled for four years in South America and the East, getting together a huge store of material for a new study into the processes of variation. He lived alone at Bolsover Conyers, with Saunders, his secretary, a man who bore a somewhat dubious reputation in the district, but whose powers as a mathematician, combined with his business abilities, were invaluable to Eustace. Uncle and nephew saw little of each other, The visits of Eustace were confined to a week in the summer or autumn, long weeks that dragged almost as slowly as the bath-chair in which the old man was drawn along the sunny sea-front. In their way, the two men were fond of each other, though their intimacy would doubtless have been greater had they shared the same religious views. Adrian held to the old-fashioned evangelical dogmas of his early manhood. His nephew, for many years, had been thinking of embracing Buddhism. Both men possessed, too, the reticence the Borsovas had always shown, and which their enemies sometimes called hypocrisy. With Adrian it was a reticence as to the things he had left undone. But with Eustace it seemed that the curtain, which he was so carefully to leave undrawn, hid something more than a half-empty chamber. Two years before his death, Adrian Bolsover developed, unknown to himself, the not-uncommon power of automatic writing. Eustace made the discovery by accident. Adrian was sitting, reading in bed, the forefinger of his left hand tracing the Braille characters when his nephew noticed that a pencil the old man held in his right hand was moving slowly along the opposite page. He left his seat in the window and sat down beside the bed. The right hand continued to move, and now he could see plainly that there were letters and words which it was forming. Adrian Bolsover wrote the hand, Eustace Bolsover, George Bolsover, Francis Bolsover, Sigismund Bolsover, Adrian Bolsover, Eustace Bolsover. Seville Bolsover, B for Bolsover. Honesty is the best policy. Beautiful Belinda Bolsover. Curious nonsense," said Eustace to himself. King George the ascended the throne in 1760," wrote the hand. Crowd, a noun of multitude. "'A Collection of Individuals, Adrian Bolsover, Eustace Bolsover. "'It seems to me,' said his uncle, closing the book, "'that you had much better make the most of the afternoon sunshine and take your walk now.' "'I think perhaps I will,' Eustace answered, as he picked up the volume.' I won't go far, and when I come back I can read to you those articles in Nature about which we were speaking. He went along the promenade, but stopped at the first shelter, and seating himself in the corner, best protected from the wind, he examined the book at leisure. Nearly every page was scored with a meaningless jungle of pencil marks, rows of capital letters, short words, long words, complete sentences, copy-book tags— The whole thing, in fact, had the appearance of a copy-book, and, on a more careful scrutiny, Eustace thought that there was ample evidence to show that the handwriting at the beginning of the book, good though it was, was not nearly so good as the handwriting at the end. He left his uncle at the end of October with a promise to return early in December. It seemed to him quite clear that the old man's power of automatic writing was developing rapidly— "'and for the first time he looked forward to a visit "'that combined duty with interest. "'But on his return he was at first disappointed. "'His uncle, he thought, looked older. "'He was listless, too, preferring others to read to him "'and dictating nearly all his letters. "'Not until the day before he left "'had used this an opportunity of observing Adrian Bolsover's newfound faculty. "'The old man, propped up in bed with pillows, "'had sunk into a light sleep.' "'His two hands lay on the coverlet, his left hand tightly clasping his right. "'Eustace took an empty manuscript book "'and placed a pencil within reach of the fingers of the right hand. "'They snatched at it eagerly, "'then dropped the pencil to unloose the left hand from its restraining grasp. "'Perhaps to prevent interference I had better hold that hand,' "'said Eustace to himself as he watched the pencil. "'Almost immediately it began to write.' Blundering bolsovers, unnecessarily unnatural, extraordinarily eccentric, culpably curious. Who are you? Asked Eustace in a low voice. Never you mind, wrote the hand of Adrian. Is it my uncle who is writing? Oh, my prophetic soul, mine uncle. Is it anyone I know? Silly Eustace, you'll see me very soon. When shall I see you? When poor old Adrian's dead. Where shall I see you? Where shall you not? Instead of speaking his next question, Bolsover wrote it. "'What is the time?' "'The fingers dropped the pencil and moved three or four times across the paper. "'Then, picking up the pencil, they wrote, "'Ten minutes before four. "'Put your book away, Eustace. "'Adrian mustn't find us working at this sort of thing. "'He doesn't know what to make of it, "'and I won't have poor old Adrian disturbed.' Au revoir. Adrian Bolsover awoke with a start. Ugh, I've been dreaming again, he said. Such queer dreams of leagued cities and forgotten towns. You were mixed up in this one, Eustace. Though I can't remember how. Eustace, I want to warn you. "'Don't walk in doubtful paths. "'Choose your friends well.' "'Your poor... your poor grandfather... (coughs) "'A fit of coughing put an end to what he was saying, "'but Eustace saw that the hand was still writing. "'He managed, unnoticed, to draw the book away. "'I'll light the gas,' he said, "'and ring for tea.' On the other side of the bed-curtain he saw the last sentences that had been written. It's too late, Adrian, he read. We're friends already, aren't we, Eustace Bolsover? On the following day Eustace Bolsover left. He thought his uncle looked ill when he said goodbye, and the old man spoke despondently of the failure his life had been. "'Nonsense, uncle,' said his nephew. "'You've got over your difficulties in a way not one in a hundred thousand would have done. "'Everyone marvels at your splendid perseverance "'in teaching your hand to take the place of your lost sight. "'To me it's been a revelation of the possibilities of education.' "'Education,' said his uncle dreamily, "'as if the word had started a new train of thought. "'Education is good so long as you—' know to whom and for what purpose to give it but with the lower orders of men the base and more sordid spirits I have grave doubts as to its results well goodbye Eustace I may not see you again you are a true Bolsover with all the Bolsover faults marry Eustace marry some good, sensible girl, and if by any chance I don't see you again, my will is at my solicitors. I've not left you any legacy, because I know you're well provided for, but I thought you might like to have my books. Oh, and there's just one other thing. You know, before the end, people often lose control over themselves and make Uh, absurd requests don't pay any attention to them Eustace (laughs) goodbye and he held out his hand Eustace took it it remained in his a fraction of a second longer than he had expected and gripped him with a virility that was surprising there was too in its touch a subtle sense of intimacy why uncle he said, "I shall see you alive and well for many long years to come." Two months later, Adrian Bolsover died Two Eustace Bolsover was in Naples at the time. He read the obituary notice in the Morning Post on the day announced for the funeral. Poor old fellow. "'he said. "'Ah, I wonder where I shall find room for all his books.' "'The question occurred to him again with greater force "'when three days later he found himself standing "'in the library at Bolsover Conyers, "'a huge room built for use and not for beauty, "'in the year of Waterloo by a Bolsover "'who was an ardent admirer of the great Napoleon. "'It was arranged on the plan of many college libraries "'with tall projecting bookcases "'forming deep recesses of dusty silence.' fit graves for the old hates of forgotten controversy, the dead passions of forgotten lives. At the end of the room, behind the bust of some unknown eighteenth-century divine, an ugly iron corkscrew stair led to a shelf-lined gallery. Nearly every shelf was full. "'I must speak to Saunders about it,' said Eustace. "'I suppose that it will be necessary to have the billiard-room fitted up with bookcases.' The two men met for the first time after many weeks in the dining-room that evening. "'Hullo,' said Eustace, standing before the fire with his hands in his pockets. "'How goes the world, Saunders? Why these dress-togs?' He himself was wearing an old shooting-jacket. He did not believe in mourning, as he had told his uncle on his last visit, and though he usually went in for quiet coloured ties, he wore this evening— one of an ugly red, in order to shock Morton the butler, and to make them thrash out the whole question of mourning for themselves in the servants' hall. Eustace was a true bolsover. "'The world,' said Saunders, "'goes the same as usual, confoundedly slow. "'The dress-togs are accounted for "'by an invitation from Captain Lockwood to bridge. "'How are you getting there?' "'I've told your coachman to drive me in your carriage.' "'Any objection?' (laughs) "'Oh, dear me, no. "'We've had all things in common for far too many years "'for me to raise objections at this hour of the day. "'You'll find your correspondence in the library,' went on Saunders. "'Most of it I've seen, too. "'There are a few private letters I haven't opened. Uh, "'There's also a box with a rat or something inside it "'that came by the evening post.' "'Very likely it's the six-toed beast Terry was sending us to cross with the four-toed albino. "'I didn't look, because I didn't want to mess up my things, "'but I should gather from the way that it's jumping about that it's pretty hungry.' "'Oh, I'll see to it,' said Eustace, "'while you and the captain earn an honest penny.' "'Dinner over and Saunders gone, Eustace went into the library. "'Though the fire had been lit, the room was by no means cheerful.' "'We'll have all the lights on at any rate,' he said as he turned the switches. "'And Morton,' he added when the butler brought the coffee, "'get me a screwdriver or something to undo this box. "'Whatever the animal is, he's kicking up the deuce of a row. "'What is it? Why are you dawdling?' "'If you please, sir. "'When the postman brought it, he told me that they'd bored the holes in the lid at the post office. "'There were no breathing holes in the lid, sir.' and they didn't want the animal to die that's that is all sir it's culpably careless of the man whoever he was said eustace as he removed the screws packing an animal like this in a wooden box with no means of getting air oh confound it all i meant to ask morton to bring me a cage to put it in now i suppose i shall have to get one myself He placed a heavy book on the lid, from which the screws had been removed, and went into the billiard-room. As he came back into the library with an empty cage in his hand, he heard the sound of something falling, and then of something scuttling along the floor. "'Oh, bother it! The beast's got out! How in the world am I supposed to find it again in this library?' To search for it did indeed seem hopeless. He tried to follow the sound of the scuttling in one of the recesses, where the animal seemed to be running behind the books in the shelves. But it was impossible to locate it. Eustace resolved to go on quietly reading. Very likely the animal might gain confidence and show itself. Saunders seemed to have dealt in his usual methodical manner with most of the correspondence. There were still the private letters. What was that? Two sharp clicks and the lights in the hideous candelabra that hung from the ceiling suddenly went out. "'I wonder if something's gone wrong with the fuse,' said Eustace, "'as he went to the switches by the door. "'Then he stopped. "'There was a noise at the other end of the room, "'as if something was crawling up the iron corkscrew stair. "'If it's gone into the gallery,' he said, "'well and good.' "'He hastily turned on the lights, "'crossed the room and climbed up the stair, "'but he could see nothing.' His grandfather had placed a little gate at the top of the stair, so that children could run and romp in the gallery without fear of accident. This Eustace closed, and, having considerably narrowed the circle of his search, returned to his desk by the fire. How gloomy the library was! There was no sense of intimacy about the room. The few busts that an eighteenth-century bolsover had brought back from the Grand Tour might have been in keeping in the old library. Here they seemed... Out of place, they made the room feel cold, in spite of the heavy red damask curtains and great gilt cornices with a crash. Two heavy books fell from the gallery to the floor. Then, as balls overlooked, another and yet another oh, very well, you'll starve for this, my beauty, he said. We'll do some little experiments on the metabolism of rats deprived of water. Go on, chuck em down. "'I think I've got the upper hand.' "'He turned once again to his correspondence. "'The letter was from the family solicitor. "'It spoke of his uncle's death "'and of the valuable collection of books "'that had been left to him in the will. "'There was one request,' he read, "'which certainly came as a surprise to me. "'As you know, Mr. Adrian Bolsover "'had left instructions that his body was to be buried "'in as simple a manner as possible at Eastbourne.' "'He expressed a desire that there should be neither wreaths nor flowers of any kind, "'and hoped that his friends and relatives would not consider it necessary to wear mourning. "'The day before his death we received a letter cancelling these instructions. "'He wished his body to be embalmed. "'He gave us the address of the man we were to employ, Penifer, Ludgate Hill, "'with orders that his right hand was to be sent to you, "'stating that it was at your special request.' the other arrangements as to the funeral remained unaltered good lord said eustace what in the world was the old boy driving at and what in the name of all that's holy is that someone was in the gallery someone had pulled the cord attached to one of the blinds and it had rolled up with a snap someone must be in the gallery for a second blind did the same "'Someone must be walking around the gallery, "'for one after the other of the blinds sprang up, "'letting in the moonlight.' "'I haven't gotten to the bottom of this yet,' said Eustace, "'but I will before the night is very much older.' "'And he hurried up the corkscrew stair. "'He had just got to the top when the lights went out a second time, "'and he heard again the scuttling along the floor. "'Quickly he stole on tiptoe in the dim moonshine "'in the direction of the noise, "'feeling as he went for one of the switches.' His fingers touched the metal knob at last. He turned on the electric light. About ten yards in front of him, crawling along the floor, was a man's hand. Eustace stared at it in utter astonishment. It was moving quickly, in the manner of a geometer caterpillar. The five fingers humped up one moment, flattened out the next. The thumb appeared to give a crab-like motion to the hole. While he was looking, too surprised to stir, the hand disappeared around the corner. Eustace ran forward. He no longer saw it, but he could hear it as it squeezed its way behind the books on one of the shelves. A heavy volume had been displaced. There was a gap in the row of books where it had got in. In his fear, lest it should escape him again, he seized the first book that came to his hand and plugged it into the hole. Then, emptying two shelves of their contents, he took the wooden boards and propped them up in front to make his barrier doubly sure. "'I wish Saunders was back,' he said. "'One can't tackle this sort of thing alone.' It was after eleven, and there seemed little likelihood of Saunders returning before twelve. He did not dare to leave the shelf unwatched, even to run downstairs to ring the bell— "'Morton the butler often used to come round about eleven "'to see that the windows were fastened, but he might not come. "'Eustace was thoroughly unstrung. "'At last he heard steps below. "'Morton!' he shouted. "'Morton!' "'Sir?' "'Has Mr. Saunders got back yet?' "'Not yet, sir.' "'Well, bring me some brandy and, and hurry up about it. "'I'm up here in the gallery, you duffer!' "'Thanks,' said Eustace, as he emptied the glass. "'Don't go to bed yet, Morton. "'There are a lot of books that have fallen down by accident. "'Bring them up and put them back in their shelves.' "'Morton had never seen Bolsover in so talkative a mood as on that night. "'Here,' said Eustace, when the books had been put back and dusted. "'You might hold up these boards for me, Morton. "'That beast in the box got out.' "'and I've been chasing it all over the place.' "'I can—I could I think I can hear it chawing at the books, sir. "'They're not valuable, I hope.' "'I think that's the carriage, sir. "'I'll go and call Mr. Saunders.' "'It seemed to Eustace that he was away for five minutes, "'but it could hardly have been more than one "'when he returned with Saunders. "'All right, Morton, you can go now. "'I'm up here, Saunders.' "'What's all the row?' asked Saunders, as he lounged forward with his hands in his pockets. The luck had been with him all evening. He was completely satisfied, both with himself and with Captain Lockwood's taste in wines. "'What's the matter?' "'You look to me to be in an absolute blue funk.' "'That old devil of an uncle of mine,' began Eustace. "'Oh, I can't explain it all. "'It's his hand!' "'that's been playing Old Harry all the evening. "'But I've got it cornered behind these books. "'You've got to help me catch it.' "'What's up with you, Eustace? "'What's the game?' "'It's no game, you silly idiot. "'If you don't believe me, take out one of those books "'and put your hand in and feel.' (laughs) "'All right,' said Saunders. But, "'But wait till I've rolled up my sleeve.' The accumulated dust of centuries, eh? He took off his coat, knelt down and thrust his arm along the shelf. Hm There's something there right enough, he said. It's got a funny stumpy end to it. Whatever it is, it nips like a crab. Ah no, you don't. He pulled his hand out in a flash. Shove in a book quickly. Now it can't get out. What was it? Asked uses. "'It was something that wanted very much to get hold of me. "'I felt what seemed like a thumb and forefinger. "'Oh, give me some brandy. "'How are we to get it out of there? "'What about a landing net? "'No good. "'It would be too smart for us. "'I tell you, Saunders, "'it can cover the ground faster than I can walk. "'But I think I see how we can manage it. "'The two books at the end of the shelf are... "'are big ones that go right back against the wall. "'The others are very thin. "'I'll take out one at a time, "'and you slide the rest along "'until we have it squashed between the end two. "'It certainly seemed to be the best plan. "'One by one, as they took out the books, "'the space behind grew smaller and smaller. "'There was something in it that was certainly very much alive.' "'Once they caught sight of fingers pressing outward for a way of escape. "'At last they had pressed it between the two big books. "'There's muscle there. "'If there isn't flesh and blood,' said Saunders, as he held them together, "'it seems to be a hand right enough, too. "'I suppose this is a sort of infectious hallucination. "'I've read about such cases before. "'Infectious fiddlesticks,' said Eustace, his face white with anger. "'Bring the thing downstairs.' we'll get it back into the box it was not altogether easy but they were successful at last drive in the screws said eustace we won't run any risks put the box in this old desk of mine there's nothing in it that i want here's the key thank goodness there's nothing wrong with the lock quite a lively evening said saunders now let's hear more about your uncle they sat up together until early morning saunders had no desire for sleep Eustace was trying to explain and to forget, to conceal from himself a fear that he had never felt before, the fear of walking alone down the long corridor to his bedroom. 3. Whatever it was, said Eustace to Saunders on the following morning, I propose that we drop the subject. There's nothing to keep us here for the next ten days.' "'We'll motor up to the lakes and get some climbing. "'And see nobody all day and sit bored to death with each other every night? "'Not for me, thanks. Why not run up to town? "'Run's the exact word in this case, isn't it? "'We're both in such a blessed funk. "'Pull yourself together, Eustace, and let's have another look at the hand. "'As you like,' said Eustace. "'There's the key.' "'What are you waiting for?' asked Eustace. "'I'm waiting for you to volunteer to open the lid. "'However, since you seem to funk it, allow me.' "'There doesn't seem to be the likelihood of any rumpus this morning at all events.' "'He opened the lid and picked out the hand. "'Cold?' asked Eustace. "'Tepid, a bit below blood-heat by the feel, soft and supple, too.' "'If it's the embalming, it's a sort of embalming I've never seen before. "'Is it your uncle's hand?' "'Oh, yes, it's his all right,' said Eustace. "'I should know those long, thin fingers anywhere. "'Put it back in the box, Saunders. "'Never mind about the screws. "'I'll lock the desk, so there'll be no chance of its getting out. "'We'll compromise by motoring up to town for a week. "'If we get off soon after lunch, we ought to be at Grantham or Stamford by night.' "'Right,' said Saunders, "'and tomorrow... "'Oh, well, by tomorrow "'we shall have forgotten all about this beastly thing.' "'If when the morrow came they had not forgotten, "'it was certainly true that at the end of the week "'they were able to tell a very vivid ghost story "'at the little supper Eustace gave on Halloween. "'You don't want us to believe that it's true, Mr. Bolsover!' Perfectly awful. I'll take my oath on it, and so would Saunders here, wouldn't you, old chap? Any number of oaths, said Saunders. It was a long, thin hand, you know, and it gripped me just like that. Don't, Mr. Saunders, don't. How perfectly horrid. Now, tell us another one, do. Only a really creepy one, please. He is a pretty mess, said Eustace on the following day, as he threw a letter across the table to Saunders. It's your affair, though. Mrs Merritt, if I understand it, gives a month's notice. Oh, that's quite absurd on Mrs Merritt's part, Saunders replied. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Let's see what she says. Dear sir, this is to let you know that I must give you a month's notice as from Tuesday the 13th. For a long time I felt the place too big for me, but when Jane Parfit and Emma Laidlaw go off with scarcely as much as an if-you-please, after frightening the wits out of the other girls, so that they can't turn out a room by themselves, or walk alone down the stairs for fear of treading on half-frozen toads, or hearing it run along the passages at night, all I can say is that it's no place for me. So I must ask you, Mr Bolsover, sir, to find a new housekeeper that has no objection to large and lonely houses, which some people do say, not that I believe him for a minute, my poor mother always having been a Wesleyan, are haunted. Yours faithfully, Elizabeth Merritt. P.S. I should be obliged if you would give my respects to Mr Saunders. I hope that he won't run no risks with his cold. "'Saunders,' said Eustace, "'you've always had a wonderful way with you in dealing with servants. "'You mustn't let poor old Merrit go.' "'Of course she shan't go,' said Saunders. "'She's probably only angling for a rise in salary. "'I'll write to her this morning. "'No, there's nothing like a personal interview. "'We've had enough of town. "'We'll go back tomorrow, "'And you must work your cold for all it's worth.' "'Don't forget that it's got on to the chest "'and will require weeks of feeding up and nursing. "'All right, I think I can manage Mrs. Merritt.' "'But Mrs. Merritt was more obstinate than he had thought. "'She was very sorry to hear of Mr. Saunders' cold "'and how he lay awake all night in London coughing. "'Very sorry, indeed. "'She'd change his room for him gladly "'and get the south room aired. "'And wouldn't he have a hot basin of bread "'and milk last thing at night?' "'but she was afraid that she would have to leave at the end of the month. "'Try her with an increase of salary,' was the advice of Eustace. "'It was no use. Mrs. Merritt was obdurate, "'though she knew of a Mrs. Handyside who had been housekeeper to Lord Gargrave, "'who might be glad to come at the salary mentioned. "'What's the matter with the servants, Morton?' asked Eustace that evening "'when he brought the coffee into the library. "'What's all this about Mrs. Merritt wanting to leave?' if you please sir I was going to mention it myself I have a confession to make sir when I found your note asking me to open that desk and take out the box with the rat I broke the lock as you told me and was glad to do it because I could hear the animal in the box making a great noise and I thought it wanted food so, so I took out the box sir and got a cage and was going to transfer it when the animal got away "'What in the world are you talking about? "'I never wrote any such note.' "'Excuse me, sir. "'It was the note I picked up here on the floor "'on the day you and Mr Saunders left. "'I have it in my pocket now.' "'It certainly seemed to be in Eustace's handwriting. "'It was written in pencil and began somewhat abruptly. "'Get a hammer, Morton, or some other tool, "'and break open the lock in the old desk in the library.' Take out the box that is inside. You need not do anything else. The lid is already open. Eustace Bolsover. And you opened the desk? Yes, sir. And as I was getting the cage ready, the animal hopped out. What animal? The animal inside the box, sir. What did it look like? Well, sir, I couldn't tell you said Morton nervously. My back was turned, and it was halfway down the room when I looked up. What was its colour? asked Saunders. Black. Oh, no, sir, a greyish-white. It crept along in a very funny way, sir. I don't think it had a tail. What did you do then? Oh, I tried to catch it, but it was no use. So I set the rat-traps and kept the library shut— Then that girl, Emma Laidlaw, left the door open when she was cleaning, and I think it must have escaped. And you think it was the animal that's been frightening the maids? Well, no, sir, not quite. They said it (laughs) was—you'll excuse me, sir—a hand that they saw. Emma trod on it once at the bottom of the stairs. She thought then it was a half-frozen toad, only white and then Parfit was washing up the dishes in the scullery. She wasn't thinking about anything in particular. It was close on dusk. She took her hands out of the water and was drying them absentmindedly like on on the roller towel when she found that she was drying someone else's hand as well, only colder than hers. What nonsense, claimed Saunders. Exactly, sir, that's what I told her, but we couldn't get her to stop. You don't believe all this, said Eustace, turning suddenly towards the butler. Me, sir? Oh, no, sir. I've not seen anything. Not heard anything? Well, sir, well, sir, if you must know, the bells do ring at odd times, and there's nobody there when we go, and when we go round to draw the blinds of a night, as often as not, somebody's been there before us. "'But as I says to Mrs. Merritt, "'a young monkey might do wonderful things, "'and we all know that Mr. Bolsover "'has had some strange animals about the place.' (laughs) "'Very well, Morton, that will do.' "'What do you make of it?' asked Saunders, when they were alone. "'I mean, of the letter he said you wrote.' "'Oh, that's simple enough,' said Eustace. "'See the paper it's written on? "'I stopped using that years ago.' "'but there were a few odd sheets and envelopes left in the old desk. "'We never fastened up the lid of the box before locking it in. "'The hand got out, found the pencil, wrote this note, "'and shoved it through the crack onto the floor where Morton found it. "'That's plain as daylight. "'But but the hand couldn't write. "'Couldn't it? "'You've not seen it do the things I've seen.' "'And he told Saunders more of what had happened at Eastbourne. "'Well.' "'said Saunders. "'In that case we have at least an explanation of the legacy. "'It was the hand which wrote, unknown to your uncle, "'that letter to your solicitor, bequeathing itself to you. "'Your uncle had no more to do with that request than I. "'In fact, it would seem that he had some idea of this automatic writing, "'and feared it. "'Then if if it's not my uncle, what is it?' "'I suppose some people might say—' "'that a disembodied spirit had got your uncle to educate and prepare a little body for it. "'Now it's got into that little body and is off on its own. "'Well, what are we to do?' "'We'll keep our eyes open,' said Saunders, "'and try to catch it. "'If we can't do that, we shall have to wait till the ballot clockwork runs down. "'After all, if it's flesh and blood, it can't live forever.' "'For two days nothing happened.' "'Then Saunders saw it sliding down the banister in the hall. "'He was taken unawares and lost a full second before he started in pursuit, "'only to find that the thing had escaped him. Three days later, Eustace, writing alone in the library at night, "'saw it sitting on an open book at the other end of the room. "'The fingers crept over the page, feeling the print as if it were reading. "'But before he had time to get up from his seat, "'it had taken the alarm and was pulling itself up the curtains.' Eustace watched it grimly as it hung onto the cornice with three fingers, flicking thumb and forefinger at him in an expression of scornful derision. "'I know what I'll do,' he said. "'If I only get it into the open, I'll set the dogs onto it.' He spoke to Saunders of the suggestion. "'It's a jolly good idea,' he said, "'only we won't wait till we find it out of doors. "'We'll get the dogs.' there are the two terriers and the underkeeper's Irish mongrel that's on to rats like a flash your spaniel has not got the spirit enough for the sort of game they brought the dogs into the house and the keeper's Irish mongrel chewed up the slippers and the terriers tripped up Morton as he waited at the table but all three were welcome even false security is better than no security at all "'For a fortnight nothing happened. "'Then the hand was caught, "'not by the dogs, but by Mrs. Merritt's grey parrot. "'The bird was in the habit of periodically removing the pins "'that kept its seed and water tins in place, "'and of escaping through the holes in the side of the cage. "'When once at liberty, Peter would show no inclination to return, "'and would often be about the house for days. "'Now, after six consecutive weeks of captivity,' Peter had again discovered a new means of unloosing his bolts, and was at large, exploring the tapestried forests of curtains and singing songs in praise of liberty from cornice and picture rail. "'It's no use your trying to catch him,' said Eustace to Mrs. Merritt, as she came into the study one afternoon, towards dusk with the stepladder. "'You'd much better leave Peter alone. Starve him into surrender, Mrs. Merrit." "'And don't leave bananas and seed about "'for him to peck at when he he's hungry. "'You're far too soft-hearted. "'Well, sir, I see he's right out of reach now "'on that picture-rail, "'so if you wouldn't mind closing the door, sir, "'when you leave the room, "'I'll bring his cage in tonight "'and put some meat inside it. "'He's that fond of meat, "'though it does make him pull out his feathers "'to suck the quills. "'They do say that if you cook—' "'Never mind, Mrs Merritt,' said Eustace, "'who was busy writing. "'That will do.' "'I'll keep an eye on the bird.' "'There was silence in the room, "'unbroken but for the continuous whisper of his pen.
0: "'Scratch, poor Peter,' said the bird. "'Scratch, poor old Peter.
1: "'Be quiet, you beastly bird.
0: "'Poor old Peter. "'Scratch, poor Peter, do. "'I'm
1: more likely to wring your neck if I get a hold of you.' "'He looked up at the picture rail, "'and there was the hand holding on to a hook with three fingers and slowly scratching the head of the parrot with the fourth eustace ran to the bell and pressed it hard then across to the window which he closed with a bang frightened by the noise the parrot shook its wings preparatory to flight and as it did so the fingers of the hand got hold of it by the throat there was a shrill scream from peter as he fluttered across the room wheeling around in circles that ever descended borne down under the weight that clung to him the bird dropped at last quite suddenly, and Eustace saw fingers and feathers rolled into an inextricable mass on the floor. The struggle abruptly ceased as finger and thumb squeezed the neck, the bird's eyes rolled up to show the whites, and there was a faint, half-choked gurgle. But before the fingers had time to loose their hold, Eustace had them in his own. "'Send Mr. Saunders here at once,' he said to the maid, who came in answer to the bell. "'Tell him I want him immediately.' Then he went with the hand to the fire. There was a ragged gash across the back where the bird's beak had torn it, but no blood oozed from the wound. He noticed with disgust that the nails had grown long and discoloured. "'I'll burn the beastly thing,' he said, but he could not burn it. He tried to throw it into the flames, but his own hands, as if restrained by some old primitive feeling, would not let him. And so Saunders found him, pale and irresolute, with the hand still clasped tightly in his fingers. "'I've got it at last,' he said in a tone of triumph. "'Good. Let's have a look at it. "'Not when it's loose. "'Get me some nails and a hammer and a board of some sort. "'Can you hold it all right? "'Yes, the thing's quite limp. it out with throttling poor old Peter, I should say. "'And now,' said Saunders, when he returned with the things, "'what are we going to do?' "'Drive a nail through it first, so that it can't get away. "'Then we can take our time examining it.' (laughs) "'Do it yourself,' said Saunders. "'I don't mind helping you with guinea pigs, "'occasionally when there's something to be learned, "'partly because I don't fear a guinea pig's revenge. "'This thing's different.' "'All right, you miserable skunk! "'I won't forget the way you've stood by me.' He took up a nail, and before Saunders had realised what he was doing— "'had driven it through the hand deep into the board. "'Oh, my aunt!' he giggled hysterically. "'Look at it now!' "'For the hand was writhing in agonized contortions, "'squirming and wriggling upon the nail, "'like a worm upon the hook. "'Well,' said Saunders, "'you've done it now. "'I'll leave you to examine it. "'Don't go in heaven's name. "'Cover it up, man, cover it up. "'Shove a cloth over it. Here.' "'And he pulled off the antimacassar from the back of a chair and wrapped the board in it. "'Now get the keys from my pocket and open the safe. "'Chuck the other things out. "'Oh, Lord, it's getting itself into frightful knots. "'And open it quick!' "'He threw the thing in and banged the door. "'We'll keep it there till it dies,' he said. "'May I burn in hell if I ever open the door of that safe again?' But Eustace Borsover did not follow the advice of his uncle and Mary. He was too fond of old slippers and tobacco. The cooking, too, under Mrs. Handyside's management, was excellent, and she seemed, too, to have a heaven-sent faculty in knowing when to stop dusting. Little by little, the old life resumed its old power. Then came the burglary. The men, it was said, broke into the house by way of the conservatory. It was really little more than an attempt, for they only succeeded in carrying away a few pieces of plate from the pantry. The safe in the study was certainly found open and empty, but, as Mr. Bolsover informed the police inspector, he had kept nothing of value in it during the last six months. "'Then you're lucky in getting off so easily, sir,' the man replied. "'By the way,' They have gone about their business. I should say they were experienced cracksmen. They must have caught the alarm when they were just beginning their evening's work. Yes, said Eustace. I suppose I'm lucky. I've no doubt, said the inspector, that we shall be able to trace the men. I've said that they must have been old hands at the game. The way they got in and opened the safe shows that. But there's one little thing that puzzles me. "'One of them was careless enough not to wear gloves, "'and I'm bothered if I know what he was trying to do. "'I've traced his finger-marks on the new varnish on the window-sashes "'in every one of the downstairs rooms. "'They are very distinctive ones, too.' "'Right or left, or—' "'Both,' asked Eustace. "'Oh, right, every time. "'That's the funny thing. "'He must have been a foolhardy fellow.' And i rather think it was him that wrote that. He took out a slip of paper from his pocket. That's what he wrote, sir. I've got out, Eustace Bolsover, but I'll be back before long. Some jailbird just escaped, I suppose. It will make it all the easier for us to trace him. Do you know the writing, sir? Uh, no, said Eustace. It's uh, not the writing of anyone I know. "'I'm not going to stay here any longer,' Eustace said to Saunders at luncheon. "'I've got on far better during the last six months than ever I expected, "'but I'm not going to run the risk of seeing that thing again. "'I shall go up to town this afternoon. "'Get Morton to put my things together. "'And join me with the car at Brighton on the day after tomorrow. "'And uh, bring the proofs of those two papers with you. "'We'll run over them together. "'How long are you going to be away?' "'I can't say for certain, but be prepared to stay for some time. "'We've stuck to work pretty closely through the summer, "'and I, for one, need a holiday. "'I'll engage the rooms at Brighton. "'You'll find it best to break the journey at Hitchin. "'I'll wire you there, at the Crown, to tell you the Brighton address.' "'The house he chose at Brighton was in a terrace. "'He had been there before. "'It was kept by his old college gyp. "'a man of discreet silence, who was admirably partnered by an excellent cook. "'The rooms were on the first floor, the two bedrooms were at the back, "'and opened out of each other. "'I'll stick to the larger of the two, since it's got a bathroom adjoining. "'I wonder what time he'll arrive with the car.' Saunders came about seven, cold and cross and dirty.' "'We'll light the fire in the dining-room,' said Eustace, "'and get Prince to unpack some of the things while we're at dinner. "'What were the roads like? "'Rotten, swimming with mud and a beastly cold wind against us all day. "'And this is July. "'Dear old England.' "'Yes,' said Eustace, "'I think we might do worse than leave dear old England for a few months.' "'They turned in soon after twelve. You oughtn't to feel cold, Saunders, said Eustace, when you can afford to sport a great catskin lined coat like this. You do yourself very well, all things considered. Look at those gloves, for instance. Who could possibly feel cold when wearing them? They are far too clumsy, though, for driving. Try them on and see. And he tossed them through the door onto Eustace's bed and went on with his unpacking. A minute later he heard a shrill cry of terror. Oh, Lord! he heard. It's in the glove! Quick, Saunders, quick! Then came a smacking thud. Eustace had thrown it from him. I've chucked it into the bathroom, he gasped. It's hit the wall and fallen into the bath. Come now if you want to help. Saunders, with a lighted candle in his hand, looked over the edge of the bath. There it was, old and maimed, "'dumb and blind, with a ragged hole in the middle, "'crawling, staggering, trying to creep up the slippery slides, "'only to fall back, helpless. "'Stay there,' said Saunders. "'I'll empty a collar-box or something, and we'll jam it in. "'It can't get out while I'm away.' "'Yes, it can!' shouted Eustace. "'It's getting out now! It's climbing up the plug-chain! "'No, you brute! You filthy brute! You don't!' Come back, Saunders. It's getting away from me. I I can't hold it. It's all slippery. Curse its claw. Shut the window, you idiot. The, The top two, as well as the bottom. You utter idiot. It's got out. There was the sound of something dropping onto the hard flagstones below. And Eustace fell back, fainting. For a fortnight, he was ill. "'I don't know what to make of it,' the doctor said to Saunders. "'I can only suppose that Mr. Bolsover has suffered some great emotional shock. You had better let me send someone to help you nurse him, and by all means indulge that whim of his never-to-be-left-alone-in-the-dark. I would keep a light burning all night if I were you, but he must have more fresh air. It's perfectly absurd, this hatred of open windows.' "'Eustace, however, would have no one with him but Saunders. "'I don't want the other men,' he said. "'They'd smuggle it in somehow. "'I know they would.' "'Don't worry about it, old chap. "'This sort of thing can't go on indefinitely. "'You know I saw it this time as well as you. "'It wasn't half so active. "'It won't go on living much longer, especially after that fall. "'I heard it hit the flags myself.' "'as soon as you're a bit stronger. "'We'll leave this place. "'Not bag and baggage, but with only the clothes on our backs, "'so that it won't be able to hide anywhere. "'We'll escape it that way. "'We won't give any address, "'and we won't have any parcels sent after us. "'Cheer up, Eustace. "'You'll be well enough to leave in a day or two. "'The doctor says I can take you out in a chair tomorrow.' "'What have I done?' asked Eustace. "'Why does it come after me? "'I'm no worse than other men. "'I'm no worse than you, Saunders. "'You know I'm not. "'It was you who were at the bottom of that dirty business in San Diego, "'and that was fifteen years ago.' "'It's not that, of course,' said Saunders. "'We are in the twentieth century, "'and even our parsons have dropped the idea of your old sins finding you out.' Before you caught the hand in the library, it was filled with pure malevolence—to you and all mankind. After you spiked it through with that nail, it uh, naturally forgot about other people and concentrated its attention on you. It was shut up in that safe, you know, for nearly six months. That gives plenty of time for thinking of revenge. Eustace Borsover would not leave his room. But he thought— that there might be something in Saunders' suggestion to leave Brighton without notice. He began rapidly to regain his strength. We'll go on the 1st of September, he said. The evening of August 31st was oppressively warm. Though at midday the windows had been wide open, they had been shut an hour or so before dusk. Mrs. Prince had long since ceased to wonder at the strange habits of the gentlemen on the first floor. Soon after their arrival she had been told to take down the heavy window-curtains in the two bedrooms, and day by day the rooms had seemed to grow more bare. Nothing was left lying about. "'Mr. Bolsover doesn't like to have any place where dirt can collect,' Saunders had said as an excuse. "'He likes to see uh, into all the corners of the room.' "'Couldn't I open the window just a little?' he said to Eustace that evening. "'We're simply roasting in here, you know.' "'No. Leave well alone. We're not a couple of boarding-school misses fresh from a course of hygiene lectures. Get the chessboard out.' They sat down and played. At ten o'clock, Mrs. Prince came to the door with a note. "'I'm sorry I didn't bring it before,' she said, "'but it was left in the letter-box.' "'Open it, Saunders, and see if it wants answering.' "'It was very brief. "'There was neither address nor signature. "'Will eleven o'clock to-night be suitable for our last appointment?' "'Who is it from?' asked Bolsover. "'It was um, meant for me,' said Saunders. "'There's no answer, Mrs. Prince,' and he put the paper into his pocket.' "'A dunning letter from a tailor. "'I suppose he must have got wind of our leaving.' "'It was a clever lie, and Eustace asked no more questions. "'They went on with their game. "'On the landing outside, Saunders could hear "'the grandfather's clock whispering the seconds, "'blurting out the quarter-hours. "'Check!' said Eustace. "'The clock struck eleven. "'At the same time, there was a gentle knocking on the door. "'It seemed to come from the bottom panel.' "'Who's there?' asked Eustace. "'There was no answer. "'Mrs. Prince, is that you?' "'She's up above,' said Saunders. "'I can hear her walking about the room.' "'Then lock the door. "'Bolt to two. "'Your move, Saunders.' "'While Saunders sat with his eyes on the chessboard, "'Eustace walked over to the window and examined the fastenings. "'He did the same in Saunders' room.' "'and the bathroom. "'There were no doors between the three rooms, "'or he would have shut and locked them too. "'Now, Saunders,' he said, "'don't stay all night over your move. "'I've had time to smoke one cigarette already. "'It's bad to keep an invalid waiting. "'There's only one possible thing for you to do. "'What was that?' "'The ivy blowing against the window. "'There, it's your move now, Eustace.' "'It wasn't the ivy, you idiot. "'It was someone tapping at the window.' "'And he pulled up the blind. "'On the outer side of the window, "'clinging to the sash, was the hand. "'What is it that it's holding?' "'It's a pocket knife. "'It's going to try to open the window "'by pushing back the fastener with the blade. "'Well, let it try.' "'said Eustace. "'Those fasteners screw down. "'They can't be opened that way. "'Anyhow, we'll close the shutters. "'It's your move, Saunders. "'I've played.' "'But Saunders found it impossible "'to fix his attention on the game. "'He could not understand Eustace, "'who seemed all at once to have lost his fear. "'What do you say to some wine?' he asked. "'You seem to be taking things coolly, "'but I don't mind confessing that I'm in a blessed funk.' you've no need to be there's nothing supernatural about that hand Saunders I mean it seems to be governed by the laws of time and space it's not the sort of thing that vanishes into thin air or slides through open doors and since that's so I defy it to get in here we'll leave the place in the morning I for one have bottomed the depths of fear fill your glass man the windows are all shuttered the door is locked and bolted "'Pledge me my uncle, Adrian. "'Drink, man. "'What are you waiting for?' "'Saunders was standing with his glass half-raised. "'It can get in. "'It can get in,' he said hoarsely. "'It can get in. "'We've forgotten. "'There's the fireplace in my bedroom. "'It will come down the chimney.' "'Quick!' said Eustace, as he rushed into the other room. "'We haven't a minute to lose. Wh- "'What can we do? "'Light the fire, Saunders. "'Give me a match, quick.' "'They must be all in the other room. "'I'll get them. "'Hurry, man. "'For goodness' sake, look in the bookcase. "'Look in the bathroom. "'Here, come and stand here. "'I'll look. "'Bean quick,' shouted Saunders. "'I can hear something. "'Then plug a sheet from your bed up the chimney. "'No, here's a match.' He had found one at last that had slipped into a crack in the floor. "'Is the fire laid? Good, but it may not burn. I know, the oil from that old reading lamp, and this cotton wool. Now the match! Quick! Pull the sheet away, you fool! We don't want it now!' There was a great roar from the grate as the flames shot up. Saunders had been a fraction of a second too late with the sheet. The oil had fallen onto it. It, too, was burning. "'The whole place will be on fire!' cried Eustace, as he tried to beat out the flames with a blanket. "'It's no good. I can't manage it. You must open the door, Saunders, and get help!' Saunders ran to the door and fumbled with the bolts. The key was stiff in the lock. "'Hurry!' shouted Eustace. "'The whole place is ablaze!' The key turned in the lock at last. For half a second Saunders stopped to look back. "'Afterwards he could never be quite sure as to what he had seen, "'but at the time he thought that something black and charred "'was creeping slowly, very slowly, "'from the mass of the flames towards Eustace Bolsover. "'For a moment he thought of returning to his friend, "'but the noise and the smell of the burning "'sent him running down the passage crying, "'Fire! Fire!' "'He rushed to the telephone to summon help "'and then back to the bathroom. "'He should have thought of that before!' for water. As he burst open the bedroom door, there came a scream of terror, which ended suddenly, and then the sound of a heavy fall. This is the story which I heard on successive Saturday evenings from the senior mathematical master at a second-rate suburban school, for Saunders has had to earn a living in a way which other men might reckon less congenial than his old manner of life. I had mentioned by chance the name of Adrian Bolsover, and wondered at the time why he changed the conversation with such unusual abruptness. A week later Saunders began to tell me something of his own history, shielded with a reserve I could well understand, for it had to cover not only his failings, but those of a dead friend." Of the final tragedy, he was at first especially loath to speak, and it was only gradually that I was able to piece together the narrative of the preceding pages. Saunders was reluctant to draw any conclusions. At one time, he thought that the fingered beast had been animated by the spirit of Sigismund Bolsover, a sinister 18th-century ancestor, who, according to legend, built and worshipped in the ugly pagan temple "'that overlooked the lake. "'At another time, Saunders believed the spirit "'to belong to a man whom Eustace had once employed "'as a laboratory assistant. "'A black-haired, spiteful little brute,' he said, "'who died cursing his doctor "'because the fellow couldn't help him to live "'to settle some paltry score with Bolsover. "'From the point of view of direct contemporary evidence, "'Saunders' story is practically uncorroborated.' All the letters mentioned in the narrative were destroyed, with the exception of the last note, which Eustace received, or, rather, which he would have received had not Saunders intercepted it. That I have seen myself. The handwriting was thin and shaky, the handwriting of an old man. I remember the Greek E was used in appointment. A little thing that amused me at the time was that Saunders seemed to keep the note, press between the pages of his bible i had seen adrian bolsover once saunders i learnt to know well it was by chance however and not by design that i met the third person of the story mortimer the butler saunders and i were walking in the zoological gardens one sunday afternoon when he called my attention to an old man who was standing before the door of the reptile house why morton he said clapping him on the back "'How is the world treating you?' "'Poorly, Mr. Saunders,' said the old fellow, "'though his face lighted up at the greeting. "'The winters drag terribly nowadays. "'They don't seem no summers nor springs.' "'You haven't found what you were looking for, I suppose?' "'No, sir, not yet. "'But I shall some day. "'I always told them that Mr. Bolsover kept some queer animals.' "'And what is he looking for?' "'I asked, when we had parted from him. "'A beast with five fingers,' said Saunders. "'This afternoon, since he has been in the reptile-house, "'I suppose it will be a reptile with a hand. "'Next week it will be a monkey with practically no body. "'The poor old chap is a born materialist.' "'It's a quick coincidence, by the way, "'that you should have known Adrian Bolsover, "'and that you should have received a blessing at his hand. Has it brought you any luck? No, I answered slowly, as I looked back over a life of inconspicuous failure. I don't think it has. It was his um, right hand, you know.
2: That was W. F. Harvey's The Beast with Five Fingers, as read by Ricky Lacoste. With relevance to genre fiction audio, he has been a regular reader for Pseudopod over the years, and also narrates and voice acts for the No Sleep podcast, Starship Sofa, and in early 2015 produced, narrated, and wrote music for an episode of Cast of Wonders, on which he is now on staff as an audio producer. His 13-year-old daughter, Isis Lacoste, also has credits in Pseudopod, No Sleep, and Cast of Wonders. Listen to their work from the links in the show notes, and feel free to contact Ricky for more narration and voice acting from either Ricky or Isis, or both, who are based out of Toronto, Canada. Apart from the narration world, his other hats include being the creator and co-host of a quirky yet provocative podcast called Cacophonus Internet Radio, which is presently in cryogenic suspension. A link to memorable clips from the archives to which you can listen will be in the show notes. Panthea is his collection of original musical compositions. He is also an environmental activist, having worked for Greenpeace Canada, the communications steward for Alfheim Valley Eco Resort. He's a baker, a hermeticist, a ceremonial magician, a summoner of demons, and teaches piano to happy little children. Thank you, Ricky. That will be our show for the night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.